by way of review as for this series, Psalm 113 and 118 is what the Jews call the Halal Psalms, okay? Psalms 113 and 118 is what they call the Jewish Halal Psalms. And what the Jews would do is, um, these would be very important Psalms, the week before Passover, the Jews would have one of their big holidays, they have many, one of their big holidays was the celebration of Passover, which is, if you remember, or the Hebrews, or God's people, the Jews, at one point, when they were still called Hebrews, used to be slaves in Egypt. Then God freed them. If you remember, God brought about ten plagues upon Egypt. And the last one, um, all the firstborn were to die, except for those that painted uh, with the blood of the Lamb on every doors. And I think that would also include those that were Egyptians also as well in an act of mercy. So when that happened, is God's uh, angel of death passed over every house. So then they had a holiday to celebrate God saving uh, the Jews out of, uh, 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 of Egypt. So every year they'll have this uh, festival. And during the last week of Jesus' life, it just so happened that it coincided that with His death and resurrection around the few days around that week, that holy week for the Jews, if you will. And these Psalms will be 113 to 18, is the Psalms that would have been read each night before, uh, beginning with Palm Sunday, or the Jews don't call it Palm Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday, which is a Sunday Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem. Um, you remember the people greeted Him. Every night the Jews would be anticipating the Passover. We'll be reading Psalm 113 one night, one. 14 uh, the other night and then the actual uh, dinner of the Passover where they eat of the lamb of the bread where they don't um, allow the leaven to be able to make because they're mimicking those days where they had to be rushed to ready to escape Egypt they would do all this as a ceremony and that last night they will read from Psalm 113 to 118 in other times in our church you might have remembered that I love to preach from about Psalm 118 if you look with me real quick before we go to Psalm 113, Psalm 118 has a messianic prophecy, okay? Uh, if you look Psalm 118, which is the last of these psalms that they will read. And by the way, even the Jews, when they're sacrificing all the Passover lamb and all that, uh, they would actually read and they'll sing Psalm 113 and 118. And when they get to 118, they'll sing it twice, uh, which is pretty amazing that God could put in the mouth of His very own enemies a praise and a prophecy about Jesus Christ dying for our sins. Psalm 118 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay. Um, in other previous sermons, you guys could go to Sermon Audio to listen to it. I made the argument, the stone is actually a title for the Messiah. Just like today, um, the presidents have more than one titles, right? The U.S. president, true or not? He's called the what? president he's called the uh, commander-in-chief that is he's in charge of the armed uh, services or the military so in the same way the messiah that is the savior for all the world which is jesus christ had more than one title he's called what the prince of peace son of god the son of man okay he's also called also as well stone hebrew has more than one word for stone this one is eben you might know some people in your life maybe work or friends that are called eben um, that's actually a Hebrew word for precious stone, like nice stones, like stones, not just you just see in the gravel laying around in the streets, but stones that are precious that you collect also as well. And this is a prophecy. I made that argument uh, in other times that this is, what, but what, one thing we're doing differently is I've never done in our church slowly preaching through Psalm 113 with the view of encouraging us, number one, and also saying, hey, what was it like in light of Jesus reading this? In the last week of his life, okay? So if you guys um, 
by the way, uh, so I'm going to be going back and forth for my screen and also as well with my outline word document for the message. So if there's anything that's wrong, um, uh, you know, Victor, if you could just unmute and just let me know also as well. Okay. Cause I won't be seeing you guys all face to face all the whole time, uh, with that. Okay. So for today, what we see here, what we see here is, uh, uh, with this is we're going to have three points from Psalm 113. Okay, three points that we have, and really, uh, I titled this uh, "Be Encouraged." Okay, for today's sermon is "Be Encouraged." Okay, um, so we're gonna see three points of what we could be encouraged by, and the way I ha- set this up is this: is even as you go through trials and tribulations and difficulties, God's word should encourage you. What we laid down for Tuesday is the reasons why is because Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, has gone through things, and yet the Psalms minister. If, if it works for Jesus, it should also work for us with our trials. So three things we should be encouraged by today. Uh, point number one, be encouraged since God's name will be praised from now to eternity. Kind of longer uh, with this first point. Be encouraged, point number one, since God's name will be praised from now to eternity. Be encouraged since God's name will be Praise from now to eternity. This is in verses 1 through 3, okay? So for those of you guys that are taking notes, be encouraged, okay? Uh, be encouraged uh, since God's name we praise from now to eternity, okay? That is point number one. That point is a little longer wording than the other points, okay? Point number two. Oh, by the way, that's in verses 1 through 3, based upon 1 to 3. Point number two. Point number two, be encouraged since no one is like our God. Be encouraged since no one is like our God. This is in verses four through six. Okay, four to six. Again, four through six. Be encouraged since no one is like our God. Be encouraged since no one is like our God. This is found in verses four through six. Okay, Uh, verses four through six. And then the third point is be encouraged... Since God reverses things, God reverses things, God reverses things. This is in verses 7 through 8, okay? Verses 7 through 8, okay? Be encouraged since God reverses things. What I mean by that is God turns things around, okay? God turns things around. This is taught in verses 7 through 8, okay? Verses 7 through 8. And as we go over each point, we'll look at what the passage says uh, we'll make the observation uh, of the word itself. But I also want to go deeper and say, okay, in light of this, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Put yourself in the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus Christ knows he's going to die. He's made it very clear. If, For instance, if you read the gospel, actually, if you read the gospel, um, there is a big focus on the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the gospel is the books that describe the life of Jesus Christ. There's four of them. If you guys remember, if you guys been in kids Sunday school, they're what? Matthew, Mark. Luke and John. If you actually look at it, most of those book, um, a third of it, or even half of each book, so some of, it, especially with the Gospel of John, over half focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of Jesus' life is really seven days that changed the world. Okay, seven days that ch- changed the world, and I don't mean that 
um, just figuratively. I think literally those seven days as he's walking towards the cross, as he knows he's going to die, he's getting ready. The biggest drama, the biggest opposition he faced is that last seven days of his life. And in those seven days, in those seven days, as difficult, as hard as it is for Jesus, it was also a very lonely time. Because his followers were thinking, oh, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. That means you're going to be a military, great military hero. You're going to win over the Roman Empire who's controlling us. But Jesus' point was to keep saying, no, I'm going to die. And then they're scratching their head like, what are you talking about you're going to die? You're talking about the death of others, right? Others being killed. He's like, no, I'm going to die. And at that lonely time, where did he turn for comfort? Is God the Son looked at God the Father and looked at the Psalms as he's reading it, as he's meditating, as every night they're singing the Psalm after every meal. And of course, the night, last night before, they sing the whole entire uh, passage of Psalm 113 to 118. Um, if you guys um, uh, want to see documentation, why I say this is, that's common knowledge, okay? Even today, even uh, non-Christian Jews still read Psalm 113 to 118 during the Passover, okay? And these are the Psalms that I think is set up pur- purposely to minister to Him. And I think as we read this, we say, wow, we could appreciate a little bit more of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and therefore we be encouraged. In light of this, let's look at point number one, okay? Point number one is be encouraged since God's name will be praised from now to eternity. This is based upon verses one through three, okay? When you look at verses 1 to 3, notice there is an emphasis on the name of God. I know I make this observation all the time. If something is repeated again and again, it's probably important, right? I know I give this illustration all the time, but it is so true. Okay, if you're a, if you're a high schooler, and I'm, thank you guys, all the high schoolers that join us, okay? If you're a high schooler, what are some things your parents repeat to you guys all the time? It's probably important, right? Okay, do your homework. Right, do your homework. I remember even my, my mom. You know, uh, I know I shared my testimony before. I was a really bad student growing up, most of my life in high school until I got saved. Finally, I, I felt like, wow, everything is God's world. Everything is living color. Everything was so fascinating, and studying was so different because it was done as an act of worship. But my mom apparently has been saying to me, study, hey, go to your room, study all my life. That even when I finally was done with two masters, after I was done with two masters degree, done with seminary. Um, during that summer, my dad, my mom just, hey, go to your room and study. I was like, oh, actually, mom, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to study for schoolwork anymore. And she said, oh, okay, okay, but, but go study, prepare your sermon, okay? That was before I got married, okay? So whatever is repeated is probably very, very important, okay? Very important. So if you look in verses 1 to 3 for this first section, what is a phrase that you see repeated a lot? Is actually the name of the Lord. Look with me and see in verses 1 to 3 how many times the name of the Lord is mentioned. It is mentioned once in verses 1. Because in verses 1, we're told, quote, praise the name of the Lord. Do you guys see that in verses 1, the second half? Look with me also in verses 2. The first half of verses 2 says we are told, blessed be the name of the Lord. So you see the name of the Lord being mentioned for a second time. Then also for a third time, uh, mention again uh, for one more instance in verses 3. We are told, quote, uh, the name of the Lord is to be praised in the second half of verses 3. So three times in this section, the name of the Lord is mentioned, which of course is showing that there is an importance of the name of the Lord as being the focus. Okay, The name of the Lord is the name of the focus. So then we want to examine a little more carefully this Hebrew phrase, the name of the Lord. What does it all mean? Okay, What does this all mean? Uh, are names important? Our names are important. You guys could put a thumbs up <laughs> reaction. Uh, I know we're all mute, okay? Names are important, right? Okay. Um, 
the names that God has given us, okay, uh, or, or our names are important. In fact, I was actually reading earlier this week, um, you guys ever look at certain individuals and you can almost tell what their name might be, okay? They actually did the study, okay? This is a uh, this is a secular study. This is like social science study, okay? Where um, they would show a picture of somebody and then they'll give them a multiple choice to, you know, like someone you don't know, like random. So they'll do this study. Uh, they, they did this social... Um, sociological studies or social science studies where they uh, show a picture of somebody that you don't know with four names and they did multiple choice, right? So statistically speaking, very likely, 25% of the time you'll likely be right, true or not. Uh, But they discovered that when they did the study, for some reason, uh, it found out it was over half of the time they got right, okay? So even when I say the name Bob, I think we picture a certain kind of person, yeah? A uh, Chad, okay? <laughs> we picture a certain person, probably a little different than uh, someone that's named Bob, okay? Uh, Richard, okay? Uh, all that kind of thing. It's interesting because our names is important, okay? So in light of this, our name is more than just uh, a reference or a, a, a symbol, uh, a phonetic symbol to uh, as a reference of us, okay? Our name, in, especially in biblical theology in the Bible, names include concept or reputation or character of a, of a person, Okay? So it's more than a, a mere title. So when it says the name of the Lord is referring to not just the name, the sound uh, of what his name sound like, but is referring to his reputation, his character, his attribute also as well. Okay. By the way, even in the Bible, when someone sometimes changes, when God changes a someone, does are there times where someone's name is changed? Yeah. You think of, for instance, the Old Testament, Abraham, right? His name before was Abram. Yes. Then it was changed to Abraham. The most, uh, perhaps the most profound in the New Testament is Saul. You guys remember Saul? He, not to be confused with King Saul, Saul means big. And yet Saul, in the, when, before he was persecuting Christian, when he was just a rabbi, a uh, Jewish rabbi, he was emphasizing himself. But later he became what? Paul, which name actually means small, okay? He's now emphasizing uh, his humility, with that, God changes His name, okay? After God changed Him. So in the same way, when we say praise God and all these things, the name of the Lord, we're focusing on who God is, is a focus and concentration. So be encouraged with who God is, okay? And by the way, the name Lord in Hebrew, uh, I know in the English is L-O-R-D. It's, it's actually Yahweh, which is God's personal name. So what are the actions we're to do in light of uh, God's character? We're, verses 1 and 3 says the word praise. We're to praise Him. Verses 2, we are to bless Him, okay? Praise and bless sounds different, but it's synonymous. It's the same idea that if you're blessing Him, you also sing to Him, okay? Just like as we done earlier in, in church worship earlier, okay? It's synonymous, but I think it goes a little further than praise. It means that we approve, we own, we embrace of all who God is and what He has done, okay? Now, for myself, reading the Bible... Uh, I feel like sometimes when I read a Bible story or narrative, there's times I don't know what's going on. There's times I would feel like, oh, wait, it also seems like, wow, why did God do this? But then I still say, you know, okay, I'm going to still trust in God first. And then later on, as I study more over down the life on the road, as I look more in the context, understand more of God's attributes, more understand who these people are and what God has done, then I slowly see, oh, there's actually um, here what's going on. Even as God judges, I think there's a sense of mercy and a sense of grace still, okay? So the first thing we need to hold is who God is. We say, you know, I might not make the sense of this passage right now or things going on, but I still want to trust in who you are 
And Lord God, help me to understand, not to twist the word of God, not to twist, to sanitize, quote unquote, scripture, but still see who he fully is in all his glory and his might and his wonder and his mercy and grace. So we're called to praise and to bless him. When would the, God's name be uh, praised? If you look at verses 2, the second line, to verses 3, first line, you see that the time of when God's name will be praised. It says, quote, from the second line of verse 2, From this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting. So it's focusing on when should we praise God, and when does praise of God actually happen? Notice there's a focus. Uh, these are temporal clauses, okay? These, are tempor- these lines are giving us timing of when we should praise God. If you look with me in the second half of verses uh, the, uh, in verses 13, if you look, uh, second line of verses 2, it focuses on the present to eternity, right? Because it says now to eternity. And then in verses 3, it gets a little more practical or, or focus even more specific. It says from the rising of the sun to its setting. That is from what? The beginning of a day. We usually think of when does the day start is what? We wake up, right? Uh, when we wake up is a new day, okay? Um, then... Then also as well to the uh, sunset. So daily we should be praising God. And the reality is also from what? From now until forever, God will be praised. God will be praised, okay? But who's supposed to praise God? Who specifically in this psalm is supposed to praise God? Look with me in verses 1. O servants of the Lord, okay? Then the next question we might have is who's a servant of the Lord? Is it only the pastor? Some of you guys might be a little bit more knowledgeable of Scripture. Say, oh, this is an Old Testament passage. So maybe this is a Jewish passage, and therefore it's talking about the priests, the Levites, um, prophets of God. But I think there's a bigger, broader uh, reference of who's a servant of God. If you guys could turn with me real quick. Uh, if you guys could turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy 10, 12, okay? Deuteronomy 10, 12, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12. Says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay? I love this here because this is um, Deuteronomy 10 is recapping of God giving the Ten Commandments. Okay? Uh, I know when I was a young believer, I was just like, oh, I just only saw Ten Commandments. It's just Ten Commandments. But remember, we must always interpret things in His context. God didn't just give us law, didn't give us rule out of nowhere and just say, hey, just follow this. But remember what was going on even before Deuteronomy 1-10. to He's recording the history of what God has done to free God's people, the Hebrews, the Israel, okay, the ethnic group called Israel, to free them from slavery. He's done all these grace and all these marvels, and then therefore that is why you what? Obey God. That's also true in the New Testament, right? Christ died for our sins, and then after you see the epistles, right? After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the life of Jesus, then you see, okay, now the Apostle Paul and other apostles writing and saying, okay, this is what you are to do. You're to live a life to love others. You're to live a life of humility. You're to live your life of being sacrificial, of caring for others, okay? You're to live a life of saying no to sexual sins or all of these things. Why? It's because of what He's done for us, okay? So Deuteronomy 10, verses 12, what I'm trying to show here is Israel, the ethnic, the whole nation is called to be servants, okay? So it's not uh, that, uh, just only that, but also as well in the church today. 
every one of us are called to serve, right? You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Everyone else serve God in different ways, right? We have different gifts, okay? So don't see the church as, oh, okay, the church servant is Jimmy Lee, okay? So when everything closes down, Jimmy Lee is also the janitor, okay? Uh, sweeping everything, okay? All of us are called to serve God. We're all one body, okay? Every one of us has different gifts, okay? Uh, some of us are just in the body. Some of us are the eyes. Some of us are, you know, legs, arm. We all have special gifts, and all of us are interrelated with that. So we're all called to serve God. But we're to serve God as servants means all of us, according to Psalm 113, we're supposed to sing to Him. Turn back with me to Psalm 113. Remember, as I said earlier, Psalm 113 would have been sung on the lips of Jesus Christ. He would have read this during the last week of Jesus' life. Because all of Israel in celebrating the Passover and celebrating what God has done. And I want to look here a little bit and say, okay, in line of verse 1 when it says, Servants praise the Lord. How much more so should Jesus Christ? If you guys remember one of the many titles of Jesus Christ, He had many titles, right? He's the Son of God, Son of Man. But He's also the suffering servant, yes? Isaiah present Him as a servant that will suffer. Isaiah 53, He's a servant who will die for us, okay? If you ever struggle with doubt whether or not the Bible is real and Christ is real, I always encourage people to look at Messianic prophecies. Look at the Old Testament and its prediction of Jesus Christ. Look and, and meditate. Go slowly, reading through Isaiah 53. And even seeing also what does even non-believing Jews say, hey, this is what it's about, uh, uh, medieval ages and before. Okay, Modern interpretation, they say it's no longer about the Messiah because they see that and say, oh, this is about Jesus, and they don't want that, okay? But if you look, even in the old study of the Jews, um, they saw this as the Messiah. And to me, that's one of the most powerful evidence for Jesus is the Messiah. And if He's a suffering servant, how much more so Jesus Christ? Imagine the week before and the night before He is about to die. When He says, from now, uh, in verses uh, 3, when this says, from the rise, or verses 2, from this time forth, think about the fact that He's going to die on the cross, and yet He had an eternal perspective. It's for the glory of God. And from this moment on, people would always look back and say, Wow, thank God that God, the Son, came down as humanity to die for our sin to the glory of God. Okay, So as application, as application, do you praise God regularly? Do you remember what the psalm says in verses 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting? Okay, One of the things I love about waking up in the springtime and summer is what the sun seems like, I don't know, it's much more brighter. And it's much more, a little warmer. And it's just so joyful waking up to realize, hey, this is the day, another day that God has given us. So do you praise God, okay? By the way, if you wake up, one of the benefits of waking up early, reading God's Word early, is it sets your mood very differently, okay? Uh, not an attitude of entitlement or self-pitying, but waking up already saying, hey, wow, this is a wonderful world. This is a, not, I mean, it's a sin-filled world, yes. But it's wonderful that God made this world. That God is real, that God is with me, and God has done all this. He's died for me, He saved me, and therefore that's a, you're praising God throughout the whole day. And you're grateful seeing His name be lifted up. Let's go to point number two. Be encouraged since no one is like our God. Okay, This is the emphasis in verses 4 to 6. Okay, Like I said earlier, each point I want to look at uh, what the passage is saying and think a little more deeper because in light of how uh, God has ordained these were the psalms that ministered to Jesus Christ as He walked towards the cross. We want to even say, how does this also connect with Jesus Christ? Okay, Looking at verses 4 to 6, notice there is a question in verses 5. This question is, who is like the Lord our God? Okay, 
Who is really the focus here? Is the hinge for this section is focusing on the question of who is like our God, okay? Who is like our God is a question, and it is rhetorical, because the Jews would say, okay, there's only one God, and it's God of the Bible, and we as Christians say that too. But then in what ways is God, we know the answer is no one else is like God. But in what ways is God is is God different than anyone else? And remember in the context, some of the neighboring countries would have other gods and stuff. And the details in verses 4 to 6 gives us the answer of what ways, the details that shows God is unique. First attribute of God that makes Him unique, that we should be encouraged that God is unique, is His transcendence. What do I mean by transcendence? That's a fancy theological way of saying that God is different and above all. Okay, Look with me in verses 4. Verses 4 is emphasized that God's transcendence, that is, He's above all. It says, the Lord is high above all the nations. Okay, The Lord is high above all the nations. Okay. Um, that he's greater than all the nations. And Israel at that time had many nations that were their enemies. Um, if you look at the geography of Israel, if you ever look at the geography of Israel, technically speaking, I know there's passages where God says protect you, but in just a, a man-centered way of looking, or humanly speaking, Israel is actually between what? Uh, I remember even showing, when I was teaching my daughter's geography, what, last year? Um, I was looking, showing them, and there were even, even uh, last week, they were like, one of them, they were, both of them were arguing with each other, like, hey, where is Israel? What continent? Okay. Uh, what are the continents, Rebecca and Abigail? Or Rebecca and Abigail, what's, what are some continents? Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot the words. What continent is Israel in? Africa. Okay. She said Africa, okay. Uh, then Rebecca said Asia, okay. Technically, it is in Asia, okay. Near East Asia, okay. Not Far East Asia, okay. Um, but then why my daughter said that is because it's so close to Egypt, okay? So in a, it's a land bridge between two continents, between very powerful countries like Egypt that's been around for a long time, and then the Middle East, which back then was Assyrian, then later the Babylonian, and even the Persian. So it's always been uh, people marching over. So when it says here, all these nations would easily go over in order to fight each other country, powerful nation, they'll simply just uh, walk through here. And yet in verses 4, there's a comfort. The Lord is high above all the nations, Okay. Verses 4. This, this, thus showing God is unique because He's above them all. Okay, uh, And by the way, whenever they follow God, God was faithful to them, allowing them not to be conquered by their enemies or their enemies were to be even um, at peace with them. Verses 5. Who's, verses 5 also shows God's transcendence. It says He's enthroned on high. Okay, That is, God is above in the heavens also as well. One of the ways that God is transcendent. Again, that's a fancy way of saying God's unique in the sense that He's above all things, okay? Also, if you look at verses 4, you also see God is glorious, okay? God is glorious, okay? It says His glory is above the heavens, okay? His glory is above the heavens. Literally, the word Hebrew word for glory is, is, means weighty one, okay? Um, I know today we live in a day and age where we kind of emphasize skinny is what? is beautiful okay but you guys realize if you look at history um skinny uh or, or being uh, or having some weight or fat was actually back in, in most of history was also seen as an as the old skinny okay because most people were pretty skinny okay there was not abundance of affluent of food right um so those that were often had a little more weight were probably affluent okay if you look at even, you know, if you remember history class in school, some some of the pictures they have or statues of people, right, of kings and, and even the standard of woman beauty, they're a little more thick, 
okay? Both man and woman. So when it says the glory of God, the weight of glory, you could have that sense of glory, okay? Of sense of honor, all of that, okay? So in verses 4, we see that God is unique in the sense He has glory. And also, in the same time, He has humility. Look with me in verses 6, okay? Verses 6. Um, it says, who humbles himself. Stop here real quick. Who's this who here? Referring to. It is God. I think I made a joke with uh, Eric before. I told him that, uh, you know, I would love to have a PhD, but real life catches up to me. I'm not going to put $20,000 into the drain of someone else just to have a name doctor, right? Dr. Reverend Lee or something weird like that, okay? So instead of that, I, I always made a joke with Eric and maybe with you guys too, that if I ever had a doctorate degree, I would love to write a thesis on the humility of God, okay? And it sounds heretical. Someone will say, wait, how, the Bible doesn't say God is humble. He's glorious. He's big. And yeah, yeah, He is, okay? But you know what humility is? It's saying, yeah, this might be who you are. You might be a CEO. You might be a president. You might be uh, um, uh, you know, uh, a leader, a manager, a supervisor in your work. But yet, even with your office and your prerogative, you don't exercise all your rights and privilege. You forego that in the purpose of serving others. There's humility. Look at the example of God, Right? Look here, he says, who humble himself. Who is this talking about? That is about God. God humbles himself. He could exercise all his prerogatives. By the way, the Bible says all of us are sinful. We deserve to be wiped out. We all deserve to die. But every second we have is because of God's grace. God is gracious even towards those that are non-believers and also towards believers. And of course, God wants all people to have the ultimate grace, is what to be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, notice God's humility. And His humility is further described. Why does He become humble in verses 6? Is that the, the things that are in heaven and the things on earth, right? To behold that. To see and identify what does things look like from our side. From our uh, finite human eyes. And, and in all of this, this shows the wonder. What other gods are there, okay? What other gods are there in all the world religion? When you read just objectively, seeing where the gods, for instance, of Islam, and we're not bad-mouthing Islam, is emphasizing God is all transcendent, is all above, it cannot relate. That's actually one of the arguments why Jesus Christ cannot be God. They say, Jesus Christ, you Christians got it wrong. It's because how could God be like us? He's so above, okay? He's so above, almost to the point of a bit of being impersonal, okay? According to Muslim apologists, like their own defenders, okay? Or, or even when you might say, oh, well, you know what? In Greek mythology, it's like Christianity. The gods come down, okay? The god of, uh, 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 what's his name? Jupiter comes down or, or Zeus comes down. But when he comes down, what does he do? When he comes down in human, like I love the story of the one where he, the, uh, he's got the uh, Greek mythology, Zeus comes down in the form of a bull, okay? Then he sees a woman he really likes, okay, named Euro. And he took advantage of her. And she had many kids and she ran away. And that formed all the people called Europeans, okay? So if you notice, well, all of that, yes, the gods come down in other myths, but it's often to take advantage of people, right? This is where Socrates or Plato, uh, what he says, Socrates, this is where Greek philosophy was born. It's like, well, you look at the gods, they're like more, even more horrible than human beings, so why follow them? Let's just go on our own human paths. And that's the birth of Greek philosophy. When you see this, when you see the scripture, when God says, who is like our God that came down to save all of us? I think all of the world's religion, all the world's religion is almost like everyone saying, how do we go to heaven? You climb your way up. Okay, I'm not, again, my purpose is not to bash. I'm just, I think it is objectively true. What I like to do when I share the gospel, when I go to Pasadena City College or 
you know, uh, or a bus stop when I ask questions or even talk to my mom. Like, what is, what do you, what would you say is the purpose of whatever you follow, right? They'll say, oh, do good things to go achieve salvation, whether it's heaven, a new heaven, new earth, or, or nirvana, or whatever state it is, or to be at one with Brahmin or whatever else it is, right? They'll always say about how you could climb basically the hilltop to the top. But you know what's different about the Bible and Christianity? God comes down from the hilltop to meet where we're at and to save us and to lift us up, okay? And to lift us up and to achieve the salvation possible to Jesus Christ. So in light of this, uh, how can we be encouraged since no one is like our God? Think about Jesus Christ singing the last night, the supper, before He's going to die, when He had the Lord's Supper, remember? When He had His enemy there with Him, Judas is going to betray, when He ripped the bread, and they're singing this song as the first song they sing. How did this minister to Jesus? I think first and foremost, when Jesus read about this part, about Him coming back, Him coming, that God took humility to behold the things that they are in heaven and on earth. He realized this is talking about who? Himself. Jesus Christ, who is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the, remember the Trinity, there's three, right? One of them, the Son, He Himself, reading this that night, realized He is the one that came down humbly to die for us. Put your pinky or thumb. Turn with me real quick to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 talks about the humility of Christ, okay? Philippians chapter 2 talk about the humility of Christ in much more details than in Psalm 113. It's like the um it's like you see a a little bit of insight. It's almost like a flower. It just starts and then now it blossoms fully in Philippians 2. And it says here Right, um, talking about that we should be humble. Why Philippians two is because we look to Christ. Okay, uh, verses five have this attitude, which was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, uh, the Greek word by the way is uh, it, word for form means the f- true essence. Okay, uh, also in the Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Death. Even death on the cross. Okay? When you realize Jesus Christ was going to be humble himself even to die in the most horrific way possible in terms of Roman uh, punishment system back then was the crucifixion. Okay? Was to be crucified. In fact, Roman law prohibits prohibits even the death of even, um, of what? of Roman citizen to be crucified. This is why in Roman law, even as people are so horrendous, even citizens, be, you know, kill Caesar, Julius Caesar, and everything else, yet none of them are crucified because they felt this was so cruel. Only non-Roman citizen were to be killed on a cross, and yet Jesus Christ was so humble, dying on the cross. Think about what it meant and ministered to Jesus Christ, that the pr- passage talks about the humility of God, which I think is a prophecy of Christ also as well. Okay, so who's like our God? I think also um, this phrase, who's like our God, um, is also as well to remind us also should echo, make us also think of Malachi 7.18. Okay, if you guys turn with me to Malachi 7.18. Okay, Malachi 7.18. This is, for those of you guys have a hard time to find it, or correction, not Malachi 7. Malachi only has six chapters. Micah, sorry, Micah 7.18. Okay, Micah 7.18. I'm returning here because it goes further with the same question. Who is like our God? Okay. Uh, who's 
it says in Micah 7, 18, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and pass over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delight in unchanging love. Okay, I love Micah 7, 18. It gives us more details to add, to tack on to Psalm 113. Of one of the ways he's, he's different, unique, is that, what does it say here? It's the gospel, right? He will pardon iniquity. He will forgive our sin, okay? He delight in this, okay? He wants to save us, okay? And I think as Jesus Christ is thinking about all this, and God's word is eternal, in looking that night, reading his humanity, knowing the word of God, what is written, also as well in Micah seven eighteen, would a minister say, I'm going forth with this mission because why? This is one of the ways I'm unique, is because, yes, I am the humble one that came down to save humanity, but also the fulfilled prophecy to forgive us of our sins, also as well, okay? So let's go now to the third point for the sake of time. Third point is be encouraged since God reverses things. Verses 7 and 8 now gives us reversal, okay? Uh, that is turning things around, right? Okay? Um, verses 7 to 8 says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heaps to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord, okay? Here in this part of the Psalms is referring to all those times in the Old Testament where God turns things around, okay? God is a God, not only is He humble, but He also what? Lifts up and honors those who are in humble situation and who are humble. I love the description. This is really a review of describing Old Testament history, okay? He raises from the poor from dust. Do we see in the Old Testament that those who are poor, that God sometimes lift up? Yeah. Especially if those poor in spirit. That is a humble spirit, okay? Verses 8. He makes them sit with princes, okay? You guys remember the story of the book of Esther? You guys remember the story of Esther? Here was a man. Uh, Esther had a cousin. So, some of your version would say cousin or uncle, okay? Named what? Uh, um, Mordecai, right? Sitting outside the city gates. And yet later God will lift him up to become almost the prime minister. The equivalent of the prime minister in the Persian Empire. And then the enemy, his enemy become what? The one that wanted to wipe all the Jews, which was named, uh, ours confused Haman and Naaman. Okay, Haman, right? He was hanged, okay? The way I always remember that was, he is hanged, instead of Naaman, which is the, the Gentile that God uh, uh, saved from the leprosy, okay? So God reverses things, okay? God reverses things, okay, throughout history. And then you also see as well, it goes on and says, uh, verses, uh, uh, besides lift, you know, Make them sit with princes and the princes with his people. Verses 9, he says, Make the barren woman abide in the house. Okay? In the Old Testament, there's full of so many stories of women that were barren, that God gave children. The first one that I could recall is Sarah. Okay? Remember Sarah didn't, wasn't able to have any uh, children. She was married to what? Abraham. And yet God gave her eventually Isaac. Okay? You think of the story of Rebecca in Genesis 25. You think of the story of Rachel in Genesis 29. And thirty. You think of Samson's mother in Judges eleven, Hannah in First Samuel chapter one, and we gone over this a little bit from for, uh, mentioning that on Tuesday, right? And you think of even the New Testament with who Elizabeth, and the greatest story of God granting a woman that cannot have a child is what Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
giving birth, a virgin birth, okay? In reviewing all of this, I think that Jesus reviews Old Testament history. When he read it the night before he's going to die, when before they were breaking any bread, the Jews would have read Psalm 113, 114 first. Then verses 115 to 118 after their meal. And when they sing this together, he would have had all these history. And yet in reflecting this in his own life, he would have realized, wow, he is one that's born unique than all these other barren women. He was born of a virgin birth. He came with a destiny, with a purpose. And that is to save all sinners. And by the way, in all of this, verses 7 to 8, matches Jesus' theme, does it not? Jesus, for instance, in places like Matthew 20, verse 16, often teach about the first shall be what? Last, okay? And the last shall be first, okay? And He teaches the theme of what? That things are not the way it seems, okay? I love even in thinking about this, okay? 2,000 years after Christ has died, there are a lot of important people in Jesus' lifetime, okay? There are a lot of important people. The important people back then, if there was People magazine, if there was a, uh, if there was a, if, if there was a TMZ back in the day, okay? The headlines would be about Pilate, would about Julius Caesar, okay? Would have been about Ananias, Sapphira, uh, 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 Caiaphas, all these high priests. But today they're largely what? Forgotten. If they're remembered, it's only in the context of what? That they're the ones that killed Jesus, okay? They're the ones that killed Jesus. And Jesus is largely what? More known, okay? So talk about the last being first, and the first shall be last. And I think Jesus Christ, reading these last two verses, would have also known the greatest reversal in history would have been done what? That when He died, a very gruesome, very humble, very shameful death, okay? By the way, you know that every drawing of Jesus Christ on the cross is rated G for godliness. Yes? Because He's always covered up with what? Um, a towel of some sort. But if you read the gospel very carefully, all His clothes were taken away because His enemy wants to shame Him, right? His enemy wants to shame Him. It would have been, put have been shown to be shameful, to try to shame Him as much as possible. And yet in His greatest hours of the worst shame, God has a great reversal of what? That He'll be died on his, for our sin on the cross, yes. But He'll be what? The first fruit. The first one raised with a glorified body. A glorified but Not just a regular human body that works. A glorified body. And saved from shame and lifted up. And on the third day after His death, would be resurrected. Gloriously telling us that God has saved us from all our sins. And to sit in the hand, right hand of God the Father. I think in reading all this, there should have application for our life. That yes, sometimes, you know, when we serve in humble situation, right? When we have to serve in humble situation, that you know what? It is okay. When we're in, you know, some of us in our work, perhaps you might feel like, oh, you know what? No one really noticed all the hard work I do. I do most of the work than everyone else. Or whatever situation is. But I think if we look towards Jesus Christ, we need to see a great what? A great reversal, okay? We need to see all these applications. These things are meant to encourage us. But the biggest encouragement I get is seeing it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Something, yeah, I could just look at verse 7 and 8 and say, Okay, God will turn my situation around one day. Which happens. Which sometimes happens. Not always, but sometimes happens. But when I look at this and realize, you know what? There's already a great reversal already happening, okay? God saving me. Redeeming me, okay? That God is unique than more than any other. That He loves me. And not in a prideful way of saying, okay, see, my God is unique. It's saying, well, God is so unique, I'm so grateful that I could have the opportunity to follow Him. Okay, He's unique, not because it's because I, He's my God, right? Uh, because I merely chose Him. But He's unique because He's unique 
And therefore I follow what is the true and what is loving. And also in light of all this, seeing all this, I think makes me more than just application and being encouraged to praise Him, all that. Yes, it's true. But to see through the lens of Jesus Christ, I think makes it so much more deeper. Makes me love Him more for all that He has done. Okay. Let's close in a word of prayer. 